everybody. Uh, this is Stories But Shorter podcast coming from the last bookstore in Los Angeles. Uh, thank you so much for having us. We have two great authors here today. Um, first, we have Shwin Juliana Wang, and she'll be reading Future Cat. The wine ager had arrived unceremoniously in a big flat box along with her grocery delivery. Before Maggie read the instructions, she'd for completely forgotten what it was and why it had come. It was the color of a brass instrument, the shape and size of an old record, with a groove going through the middle, the width of a man's wrist. A shiny button glowed warm and pink from the rim. When pressed, a word popped up in cartoonish letters. Age, it read. Maggie slid a cheap bottle of wine into the groove and pressed the button. Nothing happened. She poured a glass, took a sip, and it tasted fine. Feeling more experimental, she put her basil plant on the plate, pressed the pink button, and watched the leaves shrivel. The tiny cactus from the bathroom was more or less unaffected. At the wine shop downstairs, she picked up a bottle of 2016 Chateau Margaux that was supposed to improve with time. At home, she popped it open, poured two ounces or so into a wine glass, placed the bottle back in the groove, and pressed the age button. She poured a second glass and tested them both. It did change the flavor somewhat, the aftertaste lingering in her mouth. The color might have coated her glass longer, too. But other than that, she couldn't really tell a huge difference. When the advertisement for this wine ager appeared on her computer screen, she couldn't control herself and clicked buy right away. Even though she'd recently purged out-of-date iPods, iPads, and a VHS re rewinder shaped like a Corvette, she already had a robot vacuum, a neck massager, an air purifier, a humidifier, and a dehumidifier. What's one more small consumer appliance? The first living thing Maggie aged to death was a garden snake she peeled off the sidewalk. Her fingers hovered over the button before she pressed it. And then the snail's shell withered away in seconds, turning foul and brown. Then, before she could inspect it, her cat, a black and white rescue named Small Cow, jumped up and knocked the remains under the refrigerator. He tilted his head up at her, eyeing her suspiciously. Come here, you, she said, while noisily shaking the bag of dried duck organs that gave her magical powers over him. Last summer, Maggie had heard small cow meowing pitifully in the rain behind a dumpster. She'd brought him home, cleaned the gunk out of his eyes, and picked out his fleas by hand in the sink. Still, the callous and unsentimental animal barely acknowledged her without taking bribes. The box says that the wine ager allows you to enjoy young wines without waiting years for them to mature, she told her husband, Greg, over the phone. What does... In the last year, Greg had been promoted from product, project engineer to executive VP in charge of development. Company profits were booming, and the new responsibilities cluttered his brain. Sorry, what were you talking about again? Wine? My new wine ager, Maggie replied. It just came in the mail today. I have no idea how it works, but it's definitely doing something. Greg made his usual sound indicating for her to go on. Let me read the description to you, okay? She asked, shifting the phone from one ear to the other so she could read the box. The wine ager, TM, is made out of a patented metal alloy that creates its own electric field. The field travels continuously between the plate and the individual bottle of wine, interacting with molecules to speed up the chemical reaction of aging. Our special metal alloy acts as a catalyst to drive the aging process without adding any substances to the wine itself while substantially changing its taste and character. Are you listening? She paused. Yeah, said Greg. Taste, character, you bought this thing that takes shitty wine, wax it with electricity, and boom, it's better tasting. I got that. Not necessarily better tasting, said Maggie, just older tasting. It makes the wine older than, well, I guess it depends on how many times you press the button. She put a bag of rock-hard avocados on it. Actually, it's really sending the wine into the future, she said, and then repeated it for emphasis. The future. 
Anyway, said Greg after a long pause, what kind of underwear are you wearing? She rolled her eyes even though he couldn't see her. Greg's important deadline was to launch a new networking app called Chicken Tinder. The big beige ones. Why, just to torment me? He asked. Being promoted had also made Greg very horny. Maggie guessed it came with the territory of feeling so important so much of the time. I'd say they're vaguely medical, she, she added, the kind of practical undergar undergarments suitable for someone who is writing something that is probably going to turn out to be shit. You put too much pressure on yourself, Greg said. What you do is hard. His tone was so gentle. She wanted to put her eye socket against his shoulder. She didn't know what made her feel worse when he used to ask about her work all the time, or now that he assumed that it was not going to go anywhere. Maggie hung up the phone and pressed the button next to the avocados, but didn't bother to see what happened to them. Spring had finally arrived. It was impossible to judge the emotional repercussions of such a long succession of dreary days on the Bay Area inhabitants, but it was over. The days were warm enough that her daffodils, no longer frozen, were able to express themselves. At the bakeries down in the Mission, people shamelessly stuffed their faces with fresh strawberry pies. Grown men were taking bites out of each other's brownies. Girls stood outside, wiggling their flattened winter butts this way and that. Maggie knew this even though she spent most days inside her apartment, avoiding this elusive work that she called her book. Ever since she quit her job last fall to focus on it, every attempt at writing made her feel like an imposter. She would rather do anything else. She wanted to eat the papers so they wouldn't exist anymore. Therefore, the wine-ager presented itself as an irresistible distraction. She couldn't, stop, she couldn't seem to leave the damn thing alone. Her brain refused to, come up, refused to stop coming up with more things that would benefit from a few extra years to reach peak goodness. A bottle of soy vinegar went from five years to 15, in front of her eyes, and licking a drop off the tip of her finger, she could picture its new journey through cer ceramic urns in the sun. As she watched the contents go from thin and flat to thick and viscous, it occurred to her to try it with a sad jar of pickled cabbage. Within seconds, the leaves bubbled with frenzied fermentation, becoming as ripe and pungent as anything her grandmother could have dug out of her cellar. There were even a few debut novels on her bookshelf she put off finishing. With a few rounds on the wine-ager, she found one novel's narrative tone less grating, as the teenage characters conveyed much-needed self-awareness and wisdom far beyond her years. In another, a central character matured out of the storyline altogether, divorcing her abusive husband and running away to Antigua with a childhood fisherman friend. Certainly, the last thing Maggie wanted was to be two years older than she was, or two months, or two days. She was keenly aware of timelines, expiration dates of food, the shelf life of flowering plants, and the appropriateness of behavior at any given age. When she first started writing in earnest, she'd been a completely different person. Back in college, she won writing contests and had been bestowed with such titles as emerging and promising. It was during that boom of binder achievements that she met a chain-smoking dreamboat named Maxie in the student bar where he was playing an electric guitar with his hands and a keyboard with his foot. He was an international student with a Cyrillic tattoo across his broad, emaciated chest. Plenty of girls already knew what it meant, until we meet again. Just standing next to Maxie made her feel more like an artist. He struck everyone as a person who could derive all his pleasure from music, as if nothing, not even what time it was, ever mattered. He taught Maggie how to play the Miles Davis improvisations on the piano, using her stories to write top-line lyrics, uh, lyrics to melodies. He promised to send the arrangements to the best bands in the country. He made her picture those songs being pop hits in Finland, Jakarta, Japan. When he talked like that, swinging his arms against her cooking pans turned into symbols, she believed him. Those days, were they were transcendent, made innocent and immortal with what seemed so obvious now, all the time they still had in front of them. And she would have been willing to spend the next five years feeling like an artist just standing beside him. She would have followed him from one state to another, hopping from artist residency to colony, drinking cheap Polish vodka, and taking it out on in 
take it out, taking it out on each other in taxis. Because when they talked the things they, about the things they loved, it always felt like singing. They made up on people's stoops and kissed in a way that made people call the police. They owned nothing but each other, and that was what they fought over. Who needed sleep more? Who was busier? Whose career was more important for the greater world? Which one of them would be the bigger monster? Then a whole year passed after graduation, and, as, and instead of applying for academic fellowships and PhD programs, Maxie convinced her to go with him to an artist colony his poet friend had told him about, on an island without electricity or plumbing that two outdoorsy bros bought off of Craigslist. Huddled together beside a perpetually dying fire, they put lyrics to songs he composed and told each other stories about their families, comparing upbringings in their different communist countries. And that was when Maggie realized how truly impractical both of them were, each in their own way. When she left after three weeks on a wooden dinghy with a UTI, Maxie chose to stay there alone, happily making analog samples of magpies or birds or whatever. Do you have a plan, she asked him as they said goodbye. Any plan at all? It's not at the top of my priorities right now, he said. Whatever is supposed to happen will happen. She watched him scraping dried mud off his shoe for a, with a stick for a minute before saying, so you think I'm just going to take care of everything for you? No, he said quickly, not looking up at her. I wouldn't expect you to do that. When Maxie's visa expired during his trip home to visit family, he was banned from re-entering the country. He asked her to take care when shipping his guitars. Maggie entered an MFA program in the Midwest, but this time she earned few extinctions. After that, she got realistic about her prospects. She began following a strict set of behaviors, avoiding carbs, dark liquor, and tobacco. She moved to San, back to San Francisco, where she got a job writing content for a ride-sharing startup in order to pay off her student loans. The job was boring and made her feel underappreciated, but somehow that gave her a higher opinion of herself, like if she was wronged by the stupid world. Greg, Greg approached her at a networking event. She accidentally slept with him after too many unusually complicated cocktails, and then he bought her an iPhone for her birthday. She was charmed by how caring he was towards his younger sisters. Early on in their dating, he'd said, if it doesn't work out, I'll be your older brother. And she surprised them both by bursting into tears. She had to keep going out with him after that so as to not be rude. And before she knew it, two years had gone by and he asked her to marry him. She said she would think about it. Technically, she was still thinking about it. None of which would explain why, shortly after making herself lunch, she aged her cat. Not a minute after the idea popped up in her mind, she found herself hoisting his tubby body onto the dining table. Don't move, small cow, she said, scooping his tail onto the plate. And before he could dart away, she pressed the age button. Immediately, she regretted it. The process itself didn't seem to inflict pain, at least not that she could see. Small cow hacked a couple of times, but then he stepped off the plate and sat on his hunches, looking dazed. For the first time, he didn't seem all that excited about the duck organs. In fact, he choked on some imaginary mouthful and went to drink from a bowl that wasn't there. Afterwards, he misjudged the circumference of the lucite coffee table and leaned too far and fell off the edge. The rest of the afternoon, Maggie followed him around as he bumped into the carefully, carefully curated objects in the living room. She tried to anticipate his movements by repositioning planters and table lamps in his way. The bronze water bowl and the food dish were nudged over to new spots beside the ceramic herb planter and to the right of the sofa. His automatic feeder sounded, but instead of shooting over to scarf down his food in a ghostly blur, small cow didn't even seem to notice. It was as if in time, he'd finally gotten over the indignity of his heritage, of having once been a wild thing. Greg lets me have a cat, even though he's allergic, and we have to get a bunch of air purifiers, Maggie remembered, bragging to Maxie, the only time she got to see him again. It was he who reached out first. He sent her a message from an unknown number, asking if she was safe. Earthquakes and wildfires, much like terrorist attacks, 
have an unintended effect of bringing old lovers out of the woodwork. It had been off awkward when they met in front of the restaurant, not knowing where to put their faces when they hugged. The woman who ended up taking care of Maxie's visa situation was called Samantha, a serene teenage-looking girl, according to the picture he showed Maggie on his cell phone. Maggie t Maxie tapped his fingers at his screen, talked about Sam, Sammy, who had grown up on a soybean farm in Virginia, but had been working as a, con at, as a concierge at a hotel in Colorado. The hotel was associated with an artist residency, and it was while immersed in the scenic splendor of the West that they first met. He inundated Maggie with the details of the elaborate salads Sammy made for lunch and the twins she was growing in her belly. She's such a sweet person. She's planning on running a kindergarten from our living room, he said, holding up another photo. Greg and I could have, but we chose not to, Maggie said, her mouth around a chewed up straw. You know, if we, we did, we would have had them already. She never told Greg about seeing Maxie again. She kept meaning to bring it up casually, but never did. Now three whole months have passed and it would seem suspect. She did tell her friend Bobby during one of their writing dates at a Starbucks disguised as the neighborhood bistro. Bobby had started an online business and cut her hair into a blob and started applying her makeup cynically. Where is this going? Bobby interrupted five minutes after she got started. You didn't like have sex with him, did you? What? No, he's married now. Bobby stuck her neck out across the table. So... I can't stop thinking about him, said Maggie. What if he's the love of my life? Maxie, that emaciated homeless guy looking guy? Bobby laughed. Greg is a million times better for you. He's so supportive. He's so, so, he seems so genuinely supportive of your work. Don't you think he's supportive of my work because he's too dumb to understand that it's garbage? <laughs> I can't listen to this anymore, Bobby said, putting up a hand in front of her face and closing her eyes. This is just another form of procrastination. I know, I know, said Maggie, and she returned her eyes to her computer. They were sitting there at that unreasonable small table with both their laptops at angles trying to not spill coffee on their laps. Perhaps this is why most of their other friends from college had stopped even pretending to write. They spend their energies pretending to be creative consultants and cultural influencers and other cooler sounding things. Perhaps sensing Maggie's expression, Bobby abruptly looked up from her typing and said, look, it was a million years ago and you were both idiots, just let it go. Around five o'clock that night, Greg asked her to meet him for a quick bite at one of those old school French restaurants in Pack Heights that was definitely not cool anymore judging by the color scheme and how old the waiter was when he interrupted to take their order. You feel like eating? Greg asked, a rhetorical question, to which the answer was certainly no. It was six o'clock. Maggie had had two glasses of wine waiting for him and hadn't eaten anything but a fistful of quinoa all day. No, no, she shook her head agreeably. She wasn't expecting an actual dinner, of course not. They'd get a drink before he returned to his office to prepare for an important investor meeting the following morning. Sorry, just one more email, Greg said, not looking up from his phone, as he explained that the co-founders were de debating changing directions on the game itself entirely. They got the sick interface, but they can't decide if it's chicken tinder is going to be about dares or matchmaking for, for people with chickens. While Greg typed on his phone, Maggie talked about her adventures with the wineager. She described in detail the pear rotting from inside out, the wilting of the basil plant, and even the snail, only leaving out the part about her cat living in another dimension. So what you're saying is that it's really a time machine, he said. Yes, she cried, but it's only capable of moving in one direction, forward. That's too bad, huh, he added, one hand on her thigh and the other was signing for the check. Is that all you're going to say? Don't you want to use it? Greg laughed. He tucked his coat over his shoulders, ready to leave as soon as the check came. No way, look at me. I don't have any time as it is. If she could make time go backwards instead of forwards, she would have rewound to that autumn evening that felt too short. That night with Maxie when they talked until the restaurant turned on their lights. Maxie had come close enough to kiss her goodbye and how she marveled and panicked 
as if a girl who had been hibernating inside of her had just woken up. Even when they were in the deep of it, with their skin still touching, her mind was full of questions, racing ahead. But where would they live? And also, how could she afford to buy all the crap she was addicted to buying now? Then it was Maxie who put a stop to it. Whoa, what are you doing? He was pulling his face away from hers so that a short stack of chins gathered at the top of his neck. I can't do this, he said urgently. I haven't even been granted conditional status yet. He touched his, her left earlobe with his thumb and forefinger, and she nearly passed out with yearning. You're funny, Maggie, he said. I never know what you want from me. How long has she been sitting there, touching her earlobe, staring vacantly at the old waiter before he asked her politely if she needed anything? She shook her head. Pretending as if she knew where she was going, Maggie slid off the chair, walked past the other diners, made a sharp left at the door against the light of the oncoming cars. By the time she turned the corner onto her street, she felt absurd and sad. Maggie stormed up the stairs, slammed her front door, kicked off her shoes, and studied her face in the mirror. Her eyes welled up painfully. Maybe it was just a kind of allergy for women of all ages whose bodies could not stand that relentless coming, coming, coming of spring. It must have been past midnight. The cafes below her apartment were quiet. Picking up her purse, she walked into the living room where small Cal seemed to be waiting for her at his perch by the window. Maggie scooped him up as he mashed his little face against her arm. There had been another small cow once, a black and white furball whose name, spoken in the language she grew up speaking, was less cumbersome. She wanted nothing more than to forget that kitten, that language, all those times, but alas, nostalgia does not care for the suffering in Felix. She still remembered the morning at the courthouse when one of Maxie's friends married another girl, person's girlfriend so they could give each other citizenship. Afterwards, Maggie and Maxie had walked hand in hand to the same lawyer's office. The lawyer leaned in and looked meaningfully at Maggie, explaining the paperwork, the interview process, step by step, month by month, year by year, until she could transmit her citizenship to him like a disease. She shook her head, as if to dispel those memories, still pure and aching, and small cows scrambled away from her. She didn't have the confidence, the wisdom, to be sure of her decisions. Her past had not yet reconfigured itself into something she could understand, reordered in a way she could accept. So there was really no choice. Maggie retrieved the wineager from her collection of small, useful appliances in the living room and plugged it in. She tied her hair in a high ponytail and laid her head, left ear down, on the center of the plate. With her eyes closed, she pressed the age button. She pressed it again and again and again. The life of a memory. How long would it take for her to be able to live with it? How much faster could she speed through slow-churning time and finally grow up? I'm going to stop there. I always ask, like, what inspired you to write that story? Um, I saw, I definitely saw the wine ager in Sky Mall. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a real thing. Yeah, but I like made, uh, I made it so I can age other things on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I started writing this story when I was like 25, mm -hmm. and all my friends just kept talking about relationships that they were having. We were like real detectives about everything, like really trying to figure out if we're making the right moves. But mm -hmm. I was like, you know, when we think back to our high school relationships, everybody already knew like what was right and wrong by that point. So I was like, what if I could just speed this up, artificially mature all my friends? Yeah. And then uh, we would know what to do. <laughs> so was there, is there, when you were writing this at 25, was there an age that you were like, if, when I'm this age, I'll have everything figured out? Yeah, I thought 40, you know? I thought 40, I would be like, this, I would know everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I like how in the story, too, it seems like most of the characters besides Maggie are at the spot where they're, like, putting on this new hat of, like, this is how I should be an adult. Yeah. Um, and they seem like they have it more figured out, but they're still so young about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No one I, knows anything. <laughs>
Um, I don't think you can write about sad things if you're not going to be funny. So everything is sad, but kind of funny. <laughs> that was my first time reading that, by the way. This was really exciting. Oh, that was awesome. That was so great. Yeah, thank you guys. Of course. Um, anybody else have any questions? Well, we didn't get to hear the end of the story, but is it printed somewhere that we could go find? Um, yeah, as my book is coming out in May. So it'll be part of the book. And I think it's going to be excerpted in New York Magazine like next month. So maybe you can read it there. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What's the book called? Home Remedies. Awesome. I have a question about the uh, title. If there, because uh, she ages so many things, is there a reason uh, you decided to focus on the cat for the title? Yes. But that's a that'll come at the end of the. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. So I hope you read it. Awesome. Yeah. So everybody in May, Home Remedies, check it out. Um, great. Well, I think we're gonna go on to Matt's story. This is Matt Summel with Toast. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you for coming out. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm gonna read something from. Uh, Making Nice, which is available wherever out-of-print books are sold. <laughs> my trunk of my car. Um, it's mean, but uh, hopefully it's funny. And um, I'm just here to have a good time, so I hope you do too. All right. Uh, this is Toast. I once dated this other girl who, when faced with restaurant toast, would, would take only one bite of each of her four restaurant toast halves. She, sa she said she didn't want any of the uh, restaurant toast halves to feel neglected. You're a very nice girl, I told her, and she thanked me, and then complained about the ice cubes and her orange juice. She had this other habit, too, of putting on chapstick before drinking her coffee, and the first time I noticed it was at the zoo near the giraffes after we patronized the perky bean cart in the Wild Time Food Court. She told me she does it because she likes the greasy feel of the chapstick on her lips with the warm coffee going in. She said, I like it so much that one time I left my coffee on the porch to go get my chapstick out of my bag, and while I was inside, I got a phone call from my mom that lasted for like 20 minutes. When I finally remembered about the coffee, all these ants had drowned themselves in it, but I drank it anyway. I looked her up and, up and down and up again, and then at a trash can, and then at a yellow jacket flying messy figure eights above the trash can. After a while, the yellow jacket started hovering over a piece of what I think was chewed up gum stuck in the ashtray on top of the can, almost landed, and then zipped off to someplace else. You drank ants, I said. I did. It tastes like anything? Yeah, she said. Like coffee. I nodded at her, and then together we turned and sipped our coffees and watched the giraffes chew leaves. Later, we watched an otter jerk off. We started dating in tent style, talking all the time on the phone and in person about this and that, our regrets and our fears for the future and lawn care and breastfeeding and the whitewash feature on cars, but mostly about what we wanted to eat for dinner. And the answer was usually, I don't know, what do you want to eat? And the answer to that was usually, I don't know, what do you want to eat? And so on. And eventually she would just go, hmm, and then list off ethnic groups in the form of questions. Japanese? <laughs> and I would get really frustrated and say, uh, fuck it, let's just go to Joe's. Joe's was this dump on Cannery Row with mediocre food, but there was no freezer in the kitchen, so it was always fresh and pretty cheap. And the first time we ate there, we heard an old guy say, where the fuck am I, Miami? I hate glass bricks. We liked it immediately. One table was shaped like a rowboat and one an actual picnic bench. The silverware was mismatched too, the floor painted over cracked concrete, the baby blue walls decorated with pictures of boats and big fish, and a framed newspaper article about a World War II submarine hung outside the only bathroom. It quickly became our special place and we went at least twice a week. We even had a favorite table in the corner and we got to know one of the waitresses, Jessica, pretty well. Then one morning, my girlfriend followed me into the kitchen and watched me pour myself a bowl of granola and milk and scoop a big spoonful of it into my mouth, and she commented, eating granola, huh? I was so confounded, I stopped chewing to look at her, exactly one half of me wanting to pinch her cheeks, exactly the other half of me wanting to punch her across the room. I stood quietly for a few seconds until the feelings passed, and then when they did, I resumed eating my granola. Realizing that I wasn't going to bother with a response, she turned her attention to the window and, noticing a cat outside, declared, Oh, look, a cat. Then a few seconds later, That cat is cute. 
That afternoon, after she'd gone home, she called on the phone to ask if I'd done my laundry. Also, one night, when she was standing still and naked and backlit by the bathroom light, I noticed a kind of white, almost invisible fur all over her body. It bothered me. I never said anything about it because I didn't want to hurt her feelings, but she had no problem commenting on how my dick is browner than the rest of me. It's like the dark circles around Indian people's eyes, she said. I pretended I didn't care, but I did, but not as much as I cared about her shoes. She always wore high heels, like even on bike rides always, and to the beach in batting cages always, and to a Super Bowl party we went to once. And believe me, it wasn't so much that she was a half inch taller than me when she wore them, which she thought it was about. It was that I got sick of hearing her clomping around everywhere like a fucking pony. At first, I just made little jokes about it, started calling her trusty and offering her carrots all the time, and said things like, you can lead a lady to water, but you can't make her be sneaky. Soon enough, though, I was promising to shoot her if she ever broke her leg. She got upset, and I said, hey, it'd be real sad, but I'd have no choice. Sorry. And then I pointed my finger at her like a pistol and went, Pachoo. One Sunday, she took an hour getting ready to go to the dog park, and I told her to giddy it the fuck up. She gave me this whole, I do this for you thing in the car on the way, and I said, whoa now, slow down there, sea biscuit. If you're doing it for me, lose the fancy fucking footwear. It annoys me. She got real quiet then, looked out the window at passing stuff and said, you can just drop me off wherever. Okay, I said, how about inside the La Brea Tar Pits? Be sure to say hi to the woolly mammoths and saber tooths for me, and I'm not even fucking kidding, man. Don't call me man, she said. And when I glanced over, I could see that she started crying, which is another thing. She could be real dramatic sometimes, but worse, like the drama seemed rehearsed, like she learned it from watching too many lady movies or something. She'd cry about stuff that wasn't even worth crying about, and allow for all these pregnant pauses and deep breathe and whisper, say something dramatic like, you're mean. Exhale through mouth, close eyes, shake head slowly, clomp away. She also wrote me notes, dramatic ones, declaring dramatic things like, miss you, and you really embarrassed me last night. I work with her. And one time, verbatim, I'm not even kidding, this, risk or regret. That's the phrase associated with thoughts of you. You are someone I invest my time in who is an impossible situation. I think you are amazing. I haven't felt connected to anyone the way I do with you every morning we wake up together. Risk or regret. Almost every night before I go to bed. Risk or regret. I didn't know what to do with that info, so I put a C plus at the top and gave it back. More drama, more whisper talk, more clomping. I felt bad about that one, and I followed her out of the room and told her I was only kidding and that I was sorry. And she said, regular volume, sorry for what? Do you even know? I said, yeah, for being a jackass. That's a start, she said. But instead of explaining that I'm a moron and don't want to fall in love and have to fuck her forever, I just kissed her and fucked her for what felt like forever. <laughs> so there were things about each other we grew not to like, and the sex went from three or four positions to one or two, sometimes one or none when one or both of us was tired, which was a lot. We made each other yawn. I got to know the fillings in her back teeth. We started spending most weeknights on the couch watching America's Funniest Home Videos and animal documentaries. We were watching this one where they have a slow motion aerial footage of like a wolf chasing a mother and baby gazelle all over Mongolia for like 10 minutes. And sometime early on, the mother and baby got split up. So then it was just the wolf and the little gazelle. But the little gazelle could really move, I mean, really move. So they're zigging and zagging and leaping and then just flat out going until the little gazelle gets tired and collapses to the ground and the wolf just fucking eats them up. I mean, just rips them apart. But then later on we find out the wolf eventually starves to death anyway. And then this baby elephant goes blind in a sandstorm but continues following his mother's footprints using only a sense of smell. Only he follows them in the wrong direction so he fucking dies too. When all of a sudden I feel her scooching closer to me on the couch and I look over at her and without even turning away from the TV she out of nowhere says she wants to try anal sex. I blinked at her ear for a few seconds before saying, okay. Before you know it, I was Frenching her, and then before you know it, I was doing my high school locker combination move on her, 33, 14, four. Followed by my lazy boy technique and then my eating her pussy maneuvers before she pulled me up by my hair and rolled on her side and I stuck it in there and moved it around for a while. The whole time she talked her dirty talk, every now and again dropping in half rhetorical questions to encourage my participation, but it didn't work because I always gave one word answers. You like having your cock in my ass, Mr. Bad Boy? Yep. And it went on like that, not for too long, just right up until she started yelling, don't stop. 
And then after the 10 seconds, while I remained perfectly still with my mouth open for some reason, I apologized and went wide-legged into the kitchen for paper towels like a gentleman. Overall, I'd say it was okay, like kind of like, kind of like going through a little door into a big room. I prefer vaginas. But what was a lot of fun was to pretend that she got pregnant from it, and then the next day to pretend that she gave birth to our turd baby and that we named him Francis. <laughs> that day, the day after that, she broke up with me by dramatic note, which basically said, I can't do this anymore, which I read and then put in the sink garbage disposal. For the next few nights, I dreamt she left me angry voicemails about my laundry, and for the next few weeks, I wondered what it meant, and back and forth about trying to win her back, exactly one and a half of me wanting to, exactly the other half of me not. I decided nothing and realized I suck at decisions. My younger brother, on the other hand, doesn't. He slept with three women, decided he liked the third, and married her. This is despite her on her deathbed in the, in the den mother saying, AJ, I know you love Tara, but don't you think you should have some fun first? He squeezed her hand and told her his mind was made up. And I said about the business of unmaking it five minutes later in the kitchen by demanding he honor our mother by fucking more girls. He looked me right in the hairdo and said, sorry, bro. Don't apologize to me, I said. Apologize to that woman in there because you're breaking her fucking heart. Then apologize to yourself when your marriage falls apart in 10 years, but now you're balder and fatter and can't get the quality ass you can right now. And then reject the apology because you don't deserve forgiveness, you divorced piece of shit. You're a moron, piece of shit, he said. I don't think so. I know so. Well, here's what I know so, bro. Mom made the mistake of not fucking enough people before she got married, and she's telling you not to make the same mistake. She's being a good mom to you, and you're not listening, and I don't even think you're seeing either, because I'm pretty sure Tara's face is a dirty sneaker with googly eyes and a wig on. <laughs> you're eating mom's pain pills again? Yeah, so? <laughs> I love her, he said. Be happy for me. No, because I love you, and I'm telling you, as your brother and as your friend, fuck more girls, a lot more. AJ, every day millions of people die, and with their last, last breath, they look at their loved ones gathered around them and say, oh, shit, I'm dying. I should have had sex with more people. But no one ever dies saying, oh, shit, I should have had sex with less people. <laughs> Except maybe if they're dying of AIDS or cervical cancer. <laughs> That's really dumb, he said. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Then he walked out of the room, leaving me there alone in the kitchen, amazed and unsettled by his calm confidence, his above-thisness, a little because of the drugs I ate and the weird-looking stained-glass seahorse suction cup to the window. And then I thought, focus. And then I thought, balls. And then I thought, if I can't change AJ's mind, maybe I can change Tara's. And that's when I started treating her real shitty whenever possible. I also unprotected her best friend after my mother's funeral. And that Christmas, I stuck gum under a coffee table and left it there. No matter what I did, though, she was always good-humored and forgiving about it, unshakable as him. And in the weeks and months after my breakup, I thought back on all this, wondering how doubtlessness like that happens. And I don't know. What I do know is that when I asked my father when he was sure about marrying my mom, he said, when I stop waking up with boners. I still wake up with boners is the other thought I thought most in the weeks following the breakup. And unlike my brother, I decided to use them on as many girls as possible. I decided to listen to our mother. I decided to have fun. Of course, it wasn't always. In fact, a lot of the time, I felt lonely and miserable, especially in the beginning, when I realized I had no real gal-getting skills and just jerked off a lot and ate snacks in bed. It also crossed my mind that I'd given up on something good, something with potential, someone who cared about and believed in me. In the end, though, I let her go, and over the next few years, I changed from a mostly passive prick to a mostly aggressive one sexing a lot of girls, and I'm pretty sure contracting HPV in my throat. I continued sport-boning broads even after best-manning my brother and Tara is not as bad as I thought it'd be wedding, even after they had a daughter and named her Marie, a mother's name, even after I saw firsthand how full and rich their life together seemed. I told myself it was probably them just keeping up appearances, but when I drunkenly accused my brother of just keeping up appearances, he assured me that wasn't the case and asked if I'd be Marie's godfather. I was so surprised I hugged him and I apologized for being a jerk and told him I consider it a real honor. Then I found out I had to take some kind of church class and turn down the job. <laughs> he ended up going with Javier, this Bible-thumping family man fuckface, friend of his with narrow shoulders. And when I went 
to the baptism at St. John's, I was kind of bummed it wasn't me up there waterboarding that baby. <laughs> and after the priest hocus-pocused and abracadabater and Javier promised his promises and everyone got up to leave for the reception, I stayed seated in the pew, mesmerized by the sound of the women walking out, their high heels clicking and clonking and echoing in the almost empty and expensively built house of God. The reception was at their place where I proceeded to drink beers with my father, the widower, the new grandpa with the new toupee. We were alone on the couch, not talking to people, including each other, until I turned to him and said, Hey, Dad, what do you do when the grass isn't always greener, when it's brownish on both sides, like my dick? He squinted, sipped his beer, and said, Leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> sure. I got up and tried my best to muster up the enthusiasm to flirt with married girls in flowery sundresses, but quickly ended up back on the couch with my feet on the coffee table with the green gum still stuck underneath. I checked. <laughs> I woke early the next morning alone around six or seven. I couldn't fall back asleep, so I lay there feeling bad and hungry for about an hour, eventually getting up and dressed and finding the car keys and looking for some place to eat breakfast. I ended up at a place called the Lighthouse Grill where there were no glass bricks where I got a pretty decent serving of restaurant toast and eggs over easy and tomatoes. I was about halfway through when this guy and his lady and their daughter were seated at the table next to mine. They looked over at me a few times, so when I wasn't chewing, I tried to look like I was thinking about something, but I wasn't, not really, just squint. And eventually they read their menus. Just as the waitress asked me how everything was, the ice cubes at the bottom of my glass rushed up and smacked me in the teeth and some juice dribbled onto my chin. I wiped it with my shirt sleeve and said, good, thanks. Sure thing, she said, and dropped the check on the table and turned around and asked the guy and his lady and their daughter if they knew what they'd like. They did, kind of, and the lady ordered some restaurant eggs and toast, and the guy ordered steak and eggs, and their daughter ordered restaurant Rice Krispies and continued drawing pictures of animals with crayons on the back of her paper placemat. I didn't think the drawings were very good, but after the waitress returned with her beverages, she put both hands on her knees in an exaggerated way and said, Oh, how pretty. Is that an elephant? And the little girl nodded. And what's this one? A rhinoceros, she said. And again, the little girl nodded. And this one here, said the waitress, pointing. What's this one? It's a giraffe, exclaimed the little girl. Wow, said the waitress, a giraffe. That's great. But it wasn't great. It looked more like a dinosaur than a giraffe. And as much as I'd have enjoyed holding that against her, I have to admit a lot of things haven't really turned out the way I'd have liked them to either. Thank you. All right, thank you, Matt. Sure. Mind if we ask you a few questions? No problem. Um, all right, so for starters, what inspired you to write this story? Oh, God. Um, so I was at school at UC Irvine, and uh, Jeffrey Wolf, who was running the program at the time, he was retiring, and so they brought in a whole bunch of other mm -hmm. uh, writers, authors that we admired to, to, that were interviewing for the job. And they brought in this guy, Jim Shepard, um, whose work, if you don't know it, is amazing. And um, someone at the table asked Jim Shepard, well, what do you recommend your students write about if they have nothing else to write about? And he just was like, that's a tough question, but I suppose I would just say follow your weird. And so I started thinking about, you know, who do I know that does weird shit? And I, it's actually a, a guy I know from North Carolina who was like, uh, he's the one who drank the ants. <laughs> um, and, then I, and then this girl I was dating at the time, I saw her take one bite of each of her four restaurant toast halves and was like, what the fuck, are you, what are you doing? And she was like, I don't want them to feel neglected. I was like, all right. Um, uh, and then I just, you know, and then I just started sort of making this composite character out of, uh, you know, all these different weirdos that I knew. And um, next thing you know, I was off and running. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Um, another question I'm kind of obsessed with right now is like unlikable characters, especially as like the main character in a story. Because I feel like our culture, especially, is like. I don't like this book because the character's not likable, but mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know, I feel like we should lean more into that because we're able to get inside someone that we don't, for whatever reason, don't like. So right. do you have any 
fear in like writing an unlikable character, or do you do you relish in it? You know, um, I didn't try to come out of the. I mean, the the first story in the book is um, it's a, it's a novel in stories, uh, and I was just writing them for t for ten years about, um, uh, and it's all the same narrator, and and it's called Making Nice. That was something my mother said to me when I was growing up, um, and I thought for an overall narrative arc, why not start with him at his worst? Um, so it's a book about a guy who's like grieving horribly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and it, I think in the first page, he punches his sister in the tits, like skims over the right tit and hits his sister on the left tit and she falls over. The, it's like he's, I, didn't, I wasn't trying to start off, I wasn't coming out of the gate clean at all and trying to please people, but the overall arc would be like, well, hopefully, you know, over, over the course of the book, he becomes a more, you understand him more as a, a vulnerable, complicated, nuanced person. Like, you see where the toxic masculinity comes from and you see where uh, the bravado, you know, it comes from hurt, it comes from, you know, where he grew up, which is Long Island, which is ground zero for dickheads. Um, <laughs> All of that, and and you know, I don't know. I I I know that that's a that's a thing that we talk about is unlikable narrators, and he certainly does unlikable things. But ultimately, I don't necessarily feel like he's unlikable. Yeah. Um, I feel like he's 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 hurt, um, and it's right under the surface. It's this sort of slippery, elusive sensitivity that's like right there. Mm -hmm. um, and if you read with any kind of attention, you'll. That. Yeah, and hopefully I think the humor is a bit redeeming, right? I hope. <laughs> yes, uh. it's very funny, and yeah, I do like in the story that you do get to see him with his mother, and I think that like that shows a lot about his character and the fear he has with this girl that clearly cares about him and is like trying to, uh -huh. like, yeah, risk a regret or whatever she was saying. Very fun. Um, does anybody have any questions? Jeremy. <laughs> oh, poor Jeremy, dude. I'm going to talk to my girlfriend's parents about it. They're here, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm a, I'm certainly a voice-driven writer. I've always been that. I there's a Barry Hanna quote that I really like, which is, um, he just said, if you guys don't know Barry Hanna, he's an amazing writer. He said, uh, uh, I prefer the first person, just a guy blasting through on the little he knows. So when I was just starting, I was like, I also know just a little, you know, <laughs> maybe I can do that. So it all becomes, and I'm also really. Um, uh, myopic. I am a sentence guy more than I am an overall story guy. And I'm mostly just trying to keep myself entertained. I'm not, you know, like my, my, my um, what do you call that? Metric or, or what do you call it when you're teaching? Um, I should know this, I was a teacher. Oh, rubric. My rubric for, for work is like, uh, is this fucking interesting? Just be interesting. Be interesting on every sentence if you can. So I don't look at them as flourishes. I look at them as like that's how I get from one place to the next. And also the humor is, um, uh, I talked about this a little bit last night, but um, for me it's, it's, it's necessary to survive all the, um, all the pain and everything that it is to be a human being today, um, you know, and, and this is somewhat autobiographical based on, you know, losing my mother, although I, I give Albie all this permission to behave in ways that I didn't necessarily behave, but it's, um, Albie's my protagonist uh, but and my narrator, but he, you know, I'm just like, well, let him indulge in all the bad choices, let him do all the fucking shit, um, because that's, that's fun, and that makes stories go, you know, bad choices make for good stories kind of a thing. Um, now I forgot where I was going with that whole thing, but anyway, I hope that I hope that answers something. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What's next? What's next? Um, 
Well, I've been doing some freelance stuff, but also right before the book came out, uh, I've, you know, I published in um, Esquire a few times, and they, the editor there at the time, right, right, you know, right before the book came out, he said, what are you working on next? And I said, my mental health. And uh, it's hard to publish a book. It's, it sucks. And, um, and, and he was like, no, really, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I got a little bit of money now, so I think I'm going to take my father to Manila to find this movie that my, my old man appeared in in the 60s as an extra. He's not an actor. He just was in a movie somehow because <laughs> he's a maniac. He has one leg. He got in a motorcycle wreck when he was 19. And they shot this film in Manila. And so me and my brother had been looking for it for like 20 years on and off. And I was like, I think I'm just going to go over there with him. And he was like, well, why don't you let Esquire pay for that trip and you just write us an article? And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> And I went over there, and it was a fucking disaster. There was, I didn't know how to write a, an article about any of this. And in fact, when I got back from this two-week trip, my agent was like, so why don't you just, if you don't know what you're doing, just have someone transcribe your, the tape recorder. And I was like, what tape recorder? <laughs> I don't know, what are you talking about? And she was like, oh. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, and then I started writing, and I was like having this fucking nervous breakdown about the book about to come out and about everything else in my life exploding. And, um, and on day, it was a two-week trip, I guess about, I was on day two or three of the trip, and I already had 60 pages. Um, so I never had like a full narrative arc about what happened on the trip, which was basically me and my dad running around while he had diarrhea. But uh, uh, there's a, there a, a lot of father-son stuff going down. And um, so I am trying, currently trying to, you know, I'm 120-something pages in. I'm trying to see if that's a book instead of a, an article. No, no. But we've, I came home, and uh, about six months later, I found in my father's room a tin with, um, you know, it was like, like three-dimensional. It was like the two things, like the Kodachrome things, you put it in. It was all from the film. And it was, I guess, pictures that he had taken in the 60s from the set and then completely forgot about because he's fucking in here. Uh, and I was like, hey, Dad. And he's like, oh, that's cool. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, there, so there's this like, amazing performative aspect to your reading and, like you said, your voice. And it really does come across in the text, but I think you add a lot to it in reading it. Is there a recording of your book? No. Um, Henry Holt, who published the book, was in 2015, was like, we're going to, we'll do all that. And they made this offer we couldn't say no to. And, and then as soon as it wasn't on the bestseller list, they were like, probably shouldn't say that on tape. Uh, they walked away, but whatever. Um, it's the truth. And so we never, we never went around and did that. But thank you for, you know, I don't know, the performative com the compliment. I appreciate it. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing your work. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, you guys are great. So everybody check out their books. Um, this podcast is Stories But Shorter. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and that's it. Thanks for coming. Thanks, everybody.